Welcome to the LaughSpin.com podcast. Hey guys, what's up? It's Dylan from LaughSpin.com and welcome to yet another episode of the LaughSpin podcast. And this is not just another episode of the Laugh Spin Podcast. It is an historic episode of the Laugh Spin Podcast. This is podcast number 100. And if there's any listener out there that could prove to me that they've listened to all 100 episodes, I will, I will give you cash. I'll give you money. I don't know how much, but I'll give, I'll give you a few bucks. I don't know how you would ever prove it, but I'd probably take your word for it and, and just give you a money, a cash, a cash reward, or probably a hug, maybe a hug. If you're local, I'll give you a hug. Anyway, so uh, Laugh Spin Podcast episode 100. That only means one thing, you guys. It means let's talk about suicide. Yeah? Yeah, I'm not joking. We're going to talk about suicide this episode. I recently sat down with comedian Jeanette Rizzi, who is a Los Angeles-based comedian. She stars in her own one-woman show called Blindsided, which has also become a podcast and a documentary in which she is currently raising funds to produce properly. So if you go to Indiegogo and search for Blindsided, uh, Jeanette Rizzi, you will see that. Uh, and I highly suggest you give a few shekels to the cause. I have a feeling that Jeanette is going to get this documentary done, even if the Indiegogo campaign doesn't succeed. That's not to say you shouldn't give, give, give. And uh, after you hear the interview, I'm sure you'll, you'll want to give uh, some, some bucks. Me saying that it's going to succeed without Indiegogo is, is not to dissuade you from giving. It's just a, sort of a commentary on Jeanette herself after talking to her, you know, for about 45 minutes, an hour. I forgot how long we talked, but it was, it was good and it was educational. So a little bit about Jeanette. Like I said, she's a stand-up comedian, but she's also a personal trainer. She's got a very interesting story. She was, she was born in a very small town in Florida to a, a former nun and a former monk. So that, that's going to give you, um, that's going to give you some uh, creativity in life. I don't know anybody else who was a product of a, a nun and a monk, but Jeanette is. By all accounts, it seemed like she had a good childhood, but uh, she had uh, her best friend, Katie, who committed suicide when she was only 16. And um, as you'll hear in our interview, there was uh, another suicide involved, as you can imagine, affected uh, Jeanette's life greatly. And she herself has, you know, dealt with, uh, you know, being suicidal, you know, seriously considering that. And luckily, she didn't. The proof is that I, I sat down and talked to her, so she definitely did not commit suicide, which is uh, a good thing. So I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to shut up. I'm glad you're here with us. This was not just a dark interview. This was a very fun and funny interview. But, you know, if you're not into uh, getting at all serious in your comedy podcasts, then might I suggest you listen to uh, Farty McGee's podcast. I don't know. That's probably a podcast, but maybe don't listen to this one. But I hope you do tune in. So, um, like I said, I'll shut up. Here's Jeanette. I'm very happy to be here. This is very exciting. I'm glad you're excited. Sometimes <laughs> I, I don't know. 
it's it's weird you know like i'm I'm sure you have you have thoughts like this you're i don't or maybe maybe you don't like you're always second guessing yourself you're mm-hmm. thinking i have uh, you know 10 to 12 mini existential crises a day right you know driving in what am i do- why am i doing this is is this a thing am i doing something <laughs> worthy what am i doing i feel like that even what coming to be interviewed here today i'm like do i know what i'm talking about am i gonna be funny am i what do, what do i say you, your stomach drops you get nervous but at the end of the day once you start talking it's always yeah failings and you absolutely do not have to be funny don't feel like you have to be oh, funny good <laughs> we're gonna talk about you awesome so Jeanette Rizzi is our guest. I'm pronouncing that correctly, right? Yep, Jeanette Rizzi. You're a fellow Italian. I'm Italian. I take it yes, 100%. 100%. Nice. Any Sicilian? Um, no, my all of my family is from Sorrento. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is your family anti-Sicilian, like my family seems to be? I don't think so. I never got that from them. No. Mm, yeah. I'm a quarter Sicilian, and my mom always like says like. Ah, that's from your father. Oh. Apparently Sicilians are evil or something. Oh, you know, I've never heard that from my parents. But, you know, my mother was a nun and my father was a monk. So they tend to be very peaceful people. Monks? Yeah. Monk Literally monks? Nun. Yeah. A Franciscan monk. That was my dad. And my mom was a sister of mercy. Uh-huh. So they're pretty peaceful people. Well, that's good. Holy shit. I'm already... <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive deep. I'm excited to talk about your your stuff because you have a lot of things going on and i'm happy to sort of uh let our listeners know about what you have going on so let's take it let's take it all the way back okay let's, let, where you're from florida correct i was born and raised well i was born in gainesville florida so florida gators for mm-hmm. listeners they know them <laughs> and then um i was raised in a little town outside of uh they're called alachua florida my father being the monk and loving saint francis wanted a farm with lots of animals so I, he moved from Brooklyn, actually, with my mom when she was pregnant with me and my brother and sister. So this is home for you. And got, kind of, I mean, it was made here. <laughs> you were made born, here. I was made here and born in Florida. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he moved us to a little farm um, and, you know, got lots of animals and we kind of had, it was kind of like my big fat Greek wedding with the statues, but mm-hmm. they were all saints, all in this 17 acres of statues of, you know, St. Francis and St. Anthony, yeah. and <laughs> some misplaced pine trees and a few cows that probably um, were lost with my, you know, New Yorker father raising them on this farm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I was born and raised. Did you live someplace in between Florida and you're, you live in LA now, correct? Yes, I went to, after I graduated from the University of Florida, I did go to law school in San Diego. I didn't stay very long, but I lived, I, you know, my father put me in Little Italy and he was very proud that I was going to be a lawyer and um, I was, you know, really aching to be on the stage and I tried very hard to be a lawyer, but it just, it wasn't working. But I did love living in Little Italy in San Diego because that was gorgeous and the yeah. best food you could possibly eat. So I lived there for about almost two years and then I came to L.A. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your your childhood. So this is uh, your both of your your dad was a monk, uh-huh. like literally a monk, a monk, a Franciscan monk, and your yes. mom was a sister of mercy, was a, a sis- nun. Mm-hmm. Okay, so siblings. I have an older brother named Francis and an older sister named Anita. Okay, <laughs> what is a monk? What is a monk? We see monks. We we. We we don't know well, what monks I've never are been though. Asked that definition. What is a monk? Well, they devote their life to 
the Lord, I guess. I mean, he lived with among the monks and they prayed and they chanted and they were celibate and all of those wonderful things that Catholic monks do. <laughs> okay, now celibate. Yeah. But but then my mother, um, my, well, my father and my mother were both attending Brooklyn College, which I guess Brooklyn College used to be, not, it wasn't co-ed, okay. but it's just become co-ed. So there were two or three girls in the school, my mother being one. <laughs> and my father said he watched her talk everybody's ears off one by one until everybody left the room. And then he asked her to the spring dance. So they did meet after they had left there. They left. My mom had left the convent. Um, she says, if you ask her why she left, she'll sell, she does it. She has a very soft voice. She'll say, Jeanette, what are my two favorite things? <laughs> and I'll say, <laughs> Almond Joys and Colgate Toothpaste. <laughs> and she says, Almond Joys and Colgate Toothpaste. I gave everything to God, but when the nuns told me I couldn't have that, I said, this is not for me. So I said, you left the convent for Almond Joys and Colgate toothpaste, essentially. Yeah. My mom is, you know, she has to have Colgate toothpaste. If I ever forgot and brought her Aquafresh or whatever, right. it was not okay. I had to go back to the store. <laughs> Why? 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 She? They couldn't have their. No, they ha everything that was given to them, they had to give to the Lord. So she, she, she had nothing. So she said, "Did she have some kind of toothpaste?" I guess whatever the convent gave her, which was probably not Colgate toothpaste. Oh, I see. So my grandfather would sneak it under the table, but they would eventually find it and take it from her. So um, she left, and she, and she said she thought that she could, you know, I guess do more for the world if she was out in it. So she did leave and she became um, a kindergarten teacher. And in Florida, when they moved there, she worked a Head Start program. So it was for underprivileged kids and um, she really, she's wonderful with kids. So that's what she did. And my father had left um, the monastery because he, he thought, again, that there was more in the world for him and he really wanted children. Right. And um, he works in healthcare administration and he was studying for that and he met my mother and um, they fell in love and got married and they're still married all these years later wow yeah how old was your dad when he stopped being a monk i think he was in his almost i think he was 20 21 so he was just a little bit older because okay. he went in as a teenager wow. he was young when he went in at 13 or 14 wow and then my mother was there for five years got it yeah and did you grow up religious oh it's the one thing that my parents, I mean, enforced. And they're pretty laid back for a nun and a monk. I could do whatever I wanted. I mean, growing up in the South, you know, all my friends are like, my daddy said I can't go on a date till I'm 16 years old. <laughs> and I never heard those things. So I would go home and say, Dad, how old do I have to be to go on a date? And he would say, when you get asked on a date and you want to go, ask me. But, but isn't there an age? Nope, just ask me. So when I finally got asked on a date, I went. But um, church? Yeah. Yeah. Everything from, you know, being baptized to church every Sunday to Sunday school to, you know, confirmation. And um, my I don't even have a middle name because, you know, that was going to be my confirmation name. Right. And I wanted Athena, which my mother would not let me have. So she made me pick Nicolette. <laughs> and there was no way I was making Jeanette Nicolette my name. So <laughs> it's my confirmation name, but not my legal name. I left that alone. I see. I see. Okay. Are you still religious? I am not uh, very religious. I'm not practicing. After Katie died, I just wasn't able to go into churches anymore. Mm -hmm. I have major panic attacks. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and you know, I had a friend take his own life 
um, when I was 16. And then on the anniversary of his death a year later was when my best friend did it the exact same way. Mm -hmm. So I think I was too, and my grandmother that was lived here in Brooklyn, I loved her and she died right, right around that time. And I think it was too many funerals too fast at a young age. And so that's all I remember being in churches. So I, I, I don't practice now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Understandable. So let's talk about that a little bit. Part of the reason you're here is you you have your own podcast mm-hmm. and your own one woman show. I do about suicide. Yes, which is hilarious. Yeah. It is hilarious <laughs> such an comedy odd thing to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, that that is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because I love talking to comedians. It's great, but after a while, it's like. What what else can we can we really delve into? And I like having an excuse to talk about some real shit. Right. So first off, I guess, tell me about the show a little bit and then we'll kind of Okay. We'll Tarantino it and go and go back a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, Tarantino, that's funny. Um, well, after my friend passed away, I was in law school and I was really struggling emotionally, but nobody really knew that because I've always had this funny, bubbly personality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I actually saw John Leguizamo's Sexaholics, which I wasn't supposed to be studying, of course, and I wasn't. And um, <laughs> story of my life. And um, I thought... This is amazing because he was really funny at some points in that show, but then there were points where it was really sad. But he delivered the painful moments in a way where you you felt sad with him, but it still had humor behind it. And I, I thought, maybe this will help me. So I started writing that show. It took me 10 years to write my one-woman show because... A, I had to get through the emotional problems that I was having, and I didn't want to make my audience my therapist because you never want to do that. And I, you know, um, I didn't want therapists coming up to me after the show trying to help me. And, right. and I wanted to to find a way to tell my story and kind of heal myself and heal other people, but do it in a funny way. Right. So I spent years writing it, and it was really hard to figure out how I was going to do it. Was I going to you know, tell the sad story and then come back as a comic and do sex jokes in between to kind of give it a break because you don't want people leaving depressed. Right. So I did lots of versions and the original script is 200 pages. I mean, I basically wrote every single fact down and just it wasn't in any type of format. I didn't know what I was doing. And little by little, I asked for help and I had a director that I started with and he sort of guided me. And then I, as I typically do, I am... well, I was actually having a really hard time in, in life. And I, I really thought you better either make a decision whether you're going to live or you're going to check out. And I thought, well, I really want to do the show. And maybe if I donate the money to suicide foundations, that mm-hmm. will make me feel better because they do say, you know, Gandhi says if you a way to sort of help yourself is to help others. Right. So I did that. I set up the show. And um, and also another thing is they say um people who are suicidal stop planning things. So I was really terrified because I felt like I was losing my mind. So I just decided to start planning things. Right. And I thought, I'm just going to do the show. It's not ready. I didn't have any lines memorized. The script was in front of me. Right. But I did it as a fundraiser and I did it as my birthday because a lot of people would, um, during the day, I'm a personal trainer. So my clients tend to give me gifts. So I said, don't give me a gift. Just make a donation. And I did this show. And that was my first experience. I just jumped on a stage and had the script in front of me and and went so how how old are you at that point i was when i did my first show i was 31 okay turning 32 on my birthday yeah 
Turning 32. Yeah, okay. So. And when did your friend commit suicide? I was 17 when okay. that happened. My first friend, I was 16 and then 17. And then when did you start writing? I know you, you'd said you um, had, you had a get kind of it's through. interesting because I have a crazy memory I remember everything so in my head I started writing right away and the interesting thing is the documentary which we'll talk about later I had the instinct right away to film so I have video of when my first friend passed away of all of us telling funny stories about him and um, my my friend Katie that passed away she's sitting right next to me in these videos and we're it was interesting I started doing that and then um, I after Katie passed I just started putting the stories into my head mm -hmm. and then I would say probably uh, at 24 was when I started writing physically putting it on paper got it and that's because that was the first time I took the stage for stand-up so that's so what, that so that was yeah that really? was the I, I, as I started to learn stand-up I wasn't ready to talk about the suicide stuff for stand-up right I was learning how to you do three scenarios to punch a joke yeah. or, or how to just write jokes so then to the side I was writing the one-woman show but on stage you know, you do what every female comic does when you first step on the stage right. and talk about sex because that's easy. Sure. <laughs> so when you started stand up, it was just it was straight. It was regular stand up. It was just regular stand up. OK. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then you sort of as your confidence grew, you kind of transitioned into these mm -hmm. into the, you know, the, the solo suicide. show. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. OK. So you were 30, 31 uh, when, when, when you. I when I first did stand up? No, no when, when I, yeah. When, the, when I went on the show, yeah, when I did my first show on the stage. I was I was I was 31 and I'm like a couple weeks later turned 32. Got it. Yeah. Got it. What state is the show now? You're raising money. Yes, to... the show is done. I actually now have um I have my original show was rated R and then um in Los Angeles the Malibu City Council brought me on to do a teen show. Oh, okay. Which the show was definitely not ready for teenagers because um I still took away for to give the audience a break would tell a funny sex story or something right, right, to right. kind of let them breathe after you're telling all of these tragedies one after another. And so I had to, I hired an editor and we sat down and we turned it PG 13. So the show is, it's pretty cool. Now I have a show that I could do in colleges and I have a show that I could do for high schoolers and yeah, it's really cool. I've, I've got a PG 13 and a rated R version done They're 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 I'm proud of them. It's really exciting. That's amazing. It's amazing. You're filming like a proper documentary now, mm -hmm. and that's that's what you're raising money for, correct? That's correct. Yes, I started. I actually, um, it's interesting as a comic, I'm, or I'm sure you're with your, you're meeting people who you looked up to when you were young, and it's it's you're it's kind of surreal sitting there. I got booked for a. Uh, fundraiser for the ovarian cancer society mm -hmm. and i was just hosting and sinbad was there he was the the um, featured comedian and headliner and um i just saw these young guys filming and so i was two months later doing my first show and i just walked up to one of them and i was like hey i, I think i'm gonna do a documentary behind this show that i'm doing i actually was gonna do it behind the show i didn't really know where i was gonna go with it oh, and um okay. So I said, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll hire you with whatever I have to come film. And so he, this one guy, his name's Riley, he's stuck with me all these years. <laughs> and he's, you know, it's like, 
I, every time I can hire him, I do. And we've, we started interviewing people who have lost um, loved ones to suicide. And we've done interviews with, you know, psychiatrists and everybody we can possibly find to talk about suicide and what causes it, how to prevent it. And, um, we then I just started the podcast too, and so that's what the fundraising is sort of for the brand because I'd like to do another show, I'd like to finish the documentary and really get it out there. And there's so many interesting people all over not only the United States but the world that have lost loved ones to suicide, and they all have stories to tell and they want to tell it because they want to find a way to heal them. So we want to try to go and interview as many people as we can. Um, so we don't miss anybody, you know, right. no age limits, no cult, you know, we want to all the cultures that are out there that experience it. I mean, we want to talk to everybody. Yeah. So that's what we're raising the funds for. So we can, you know, make the best documentary possible about suicide prevention. But I'm still going at the approach of finding humor because I've watched as many documentaries as I can about suicide. And you, oh, at the end of it, you're so depressed. <laughs> it's just so depressing. And I'm like, I have to find a way to make this uplifting. If there's even a way to make that topic uplifting. No, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the best at this point, and we talked about this off mic when I was interviewing Judd Apatow, I totally forgot who I said that to. That's just <laughs> I got funny. It. I yeah. remember for you. <laughs> I thought I said it to a friend or I, I, I don't even remember that anymore. But I mean, at this point in my life, I've seen so many comedians and and obviously I love to laugh but I feel like at this point I I, I really enjoy comedy that challenges me a little mm -hmm. bit and and makes me feel like I'm not alone right and I think that's exactly the approach you need to have with this this documentary because some of the greatest comedians I was a, a you know a huge Greg Giraldo fan and uh, you know like a Mark Mark Marin well before he started his podcast and the things about them that I loved so much is that you were laughing but the whole time you were really listening to a guy who was super sensitive mm -hmm. and had a lot of insecurities and had a lot of guilt. And right. you're laughing, sure, but you're also feeling a lot more human and you're leaving the show, not just having laughed for an hour, but you feel like, all right, maybe I'm not as fucked up as, as, as I think. So... Um, As a comic, too, you realize that you're not sure if a joke is going to work or not. You're not sure if anybody relates to you, but you get up on stage and I do a joke about the newspaper being depressing and, yeah. you know, and, and or the news in general. And I thought maybe that's just because I in my own, you know, head that tends to be depressed. Well, maybe I just feel this way. But when you get up and everybody relates, it's like, no, everybody relates to somebody yeah. who has something to say on a stage. Yeah. I wanted to also talk about your experiences with with suicide because I think that's I think that's important. I think anybody listening to this, I think it's it's good for them to hear you know what your experiences mm -hmm. have been, right? Just so we're not talking about it like in a bubble. Like I'm sure that's what your documentary and your your one room right. show does. Yeah. So I guess take me back to your friend Katie. Mm -hmm. But there was a friend before that? A friend before suicide? that. Yes. He he um, took his own life. We were in school. We were in. Um, Katie was a little bit younger than me. Um, and she was uh, we had we're on the softball team together. And so we were at the field. I was a pitcher. She was a catcher. And I had the our coach sent us out seventh period. And another friend of mine was uh i guess something happened and um 
he the the friend that took his own life at first period just yelled you know fuck this someone take me home so my friend took him home and he uh, who happened to be katie's boyfriend took him home and he took his own life and um he shot himself and he put the gun under his chin and um he left a note and he left in the note that he you know tell katie i'll always love her so he had a crush on katie but katie had this other boyfriend and, you know, the adults told her that, which I really didn't think they should have told her. I don't think there's yeah. some things teenagers don't need to know. And that was something that should not. It's my opinion. I'm not blaming him for what she did. You know, when people take their own lives, it's always their fault. Right. As much as I took the, you know, the I blame for what Katie did for years and years. At the end of the day, it was her fault. But uh, they told her and it, it ate her alive. And so... She always listened to that Titanic song, you know, mm -hmm. here, whatever, near, far, wherever you are, right. on repeat. And she would tell me it reminded her of him. And a year later, on the anniversary of his death, she did it the exact same way that he did. She left that song on repeat in her bedroom. And uh, she, you know, passed away. She shot herself the same way he did and, you know, left notes and jewelry for everyone. And, you know, with her, there were no signs, though. It was absolutely a shock just he had as i've gotten older and read and learned about suicide he had the signs changing his hair color acting out not her no signs whatsoever so she just you know checked out and doing the documentary i've actually found closure in it because she called me the night before she did it and i felt like i had failed her as a friend i didn't i didn't wasn't able to call her back and we had made these promises with each other that we were going to dump our boyfriends and i didn't do it and i was right. embarrassed to tell her so i thought i'll buy her ice cream the next day and be like yeah i'm chicken shit <laughs> and um you know i blame myself but then doing the interviews for the documentary going back to alachua and interviewing the coaches and the teachers they all said that they all realized the day before she did it she went to say goodbye to everyone and in a way where they didn't know she was saying goodbye, but she was saying goodbye. And um, I realized that's probably, you know, why she called me too. She didn't call me for any other reason. I couldn't have saved her. Right. She was going to go and she did. And you said that, you know, the adults told her about, mm -hmm. um, you know, the crush, but then there was no, there was no signs. Mm -mm. So is it retroactively that you guys just, realized that that must have been eating her up inside or did, did well, she, she said she things to me she, she had said do you think he did that because of me or, right. or i feel responsible she had said those kind of things it's just you know it was very hard for me to say out loud because i don't want the family of my first friend that passed to um feel as though i blame him because right. i don't and you know they don't talk about his death um, I've done fundraisers and raised funds for benches and, and asked them, what would you like me to say for him? And, and I've never got any response. Mm -hmm. And even it eats me alive because I feel like he's forgotten. But as a, I guess, a business person, you don't have permission to say his name. So I, I don't I don't right. do that. And out of respect for the family. Sure. But um, yeah, so she she had said things here and there. And I think as they say with teenage suicide, especially it's a domino effect. One does it, the next one does it, the next one does it. Really? So, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of schools that have lost, you know, students, it's usually three or four that go and, and it's wow, called the I domino effect. Yeah. It's a domino effect of suicide. 
So um, I don't even think I would have ever thought about it if they hadn't done it. Truthfully, I don't think I would have ever had any struggles with it had I not experienced what I did so young. Because it becomes an option, I guess. It becomes an option. Because it's in front of you. It's in front of you. You think maybe they feel less pain. I think with teenagers, they don't grasp that they're dead. That's my my thing with teenagers. I don't think they they get that they're going to kind of serve a. Uh, fuck you to the people who were mean to them. They get that people are going to cry. They get that there's going to be this funeral in this morning, but I don't think they get that they don't come back. Yeah. You know what I mean? As silly as that sounds. It's right. I I, I totally think that they don't get that. And maybe that's what was so good about when I went through feeling suicidal. I was older, but I also knew the aftermath of what survivors go through. I knew the guilt that I carried for Katie's death. I saw how it changed her family and and so many of her friends with alcoholism and all these kind of things, how we all coped. And I just didn't want to do that to anybody. Plus, I have my dog Flash, and I wasn't going to leave Flash. <laughs> <laughs> and you got Flash right after the Katie after passed away. after Katie passed away, my sister, my mom sent me to therapy, to this horrible therapist, which then I learned you better find the right therapist. Right. And uh, he was horrible and said, like, I was crying because I didn't get a Christmas present from my mom. And I was like, no, I had one friend shoot himself, and now my best friend shot herself. I think that's why I'm crying. No, I think your parents didn't pay you enough attention. I'm like, well... Okay, sir, thank you. And so my sister um, drove me, and then we went to the mall across the street, and there was a little mini dachshund. And I asked her if if I could hold him, because, you know, being a teenager, you weren't allowed to, but my sister Nita's older than me. So she put him in my hands, and he just, oh, lick, lick, lick my face and ran in circles around me. And uh, she went back that night and bought him for me. (laughs) And he's he's totally the reason I'm still alive. I love that dog more than anything, and he's pulled me through the worst times. I don't care when anybody says dogs have souls they have emotions you know it's interesting he's not educated he can't speak but he seems to be the only being that ever knew when i cried just to sit there with me yeah you know he knew he didn't run away he didn't act awkward they absolutely know (laughs) come on they absolutely know even his dog nanny that's there with him right now while i'm here (laughs) she texted me she said oh flash was so sweet i got frustrated with my homework and he came over and licked my leg (laughs) i was like he knows he's good (laughs) so yo you want me to lick your leg yeah it's i could lick your leg that'll make it better right so good old flash he's an angel how old were you exactly when Katie passed away? I was 17. You're about 17. to turn 18, yeah. How old are you now? Now I'm 35. Okay. Just turned that in June. Well, uh, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Shit. And so at what point, that's real professional. God, shit. Wow, you've been through a lot. But it's, <laughs> no wonder uh, you wanted to die. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever felt suicidal per se mm-hmm. i mean i definitely deal with depression i've been in therapy for uh for years i like to think i get it a little bit obviously i i, I have no idea how how exactly you feel but when did you start feeling suicidal well I, you know i was definitely struggling um i developed uh trichotillomania which for those listening don't know what that is it's hair pulling so it's in the family of cutting because that's just how i release the pain yeah that was what the first step of it kind of everything falling out from under me and then um, how old were you then i'm sorry i keep asking but i I love timelines it's it's all right i had you know i had that i'd play with my hair a lot but the pulling started probably 19 right after and it just over the years has gotten worse um but i this i started to slip i was in my early 20s 
And when you, you know, when you're in your twenties, everything seems like it's the end of the world. It really does. You know, I wanted to make my dad proud and be a lawyer, but deep down, I, I just, I, I'm too ADD for it. I couldn't yeah. sit and study. I didn't want it. I've always wanted to be on a stage. You know, I always, in my day job, I'm in fitness. I always love running around. I can't sit still. I tried to be the best lawyer I could be, and I didn't want to do it. I felt like I had failed my father. And I moved to LA, and I was madly in love with this guy that I, sh- you know, shouldn't have been, but I was blinded by that, as love does. And um, he was totally using me and living, you know, I was paying for everything like girls do when they're young and stupid. And he ended up leaving. He just left one day. And, and the worst part was he took all of the food out of my refrigerator, kind of like, right? And, and I thought that it was the end of the world. I thought, I can't live through this. I can't live without this man. I just thought it was the end of the world. And so that was when I had hit my low. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I had that, you know, that emergency broadcast, that beep. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Like everything just went silent. Everything was in slow motion. I walked in my house. It was a total mess. And I know, you know, he was gone and he had left me. And I thought that was it. I couldn't live with him any, live anymore without him. And, um, but flash cord kind of, you know, I was ready to go and he just came over and started to lick my leg and it sort of just snapped me out of it. And now looking back on it, I think I was trying to think of comedy about this the other day. If you're feeling suicidal, you should, whatever you want to kill yourself about, write the obituary and see if it is even going to make sense. Because I mean, if you would have read my obituary, it would have been like Jeanette was robbed and all of her yogurt was gone and she killed herself. Like that's fucking stupid. You can't kill yourself over yogurt disappearing from your refrigerator in the hands of a man who you were paying for it just you don't do that so you know that's my advice i was like i think i'm gonna give that advice to people right whatever you want to kill yourself write the obituary right. first and see if that makes sense <laughs> god that's such a douchey move like can't you just leave you have, my, you have yeah. to like nickel and dime it like I'm totally taking the yogurt. I know. I, and, he, and it was like I had, you know, two boxes of shredded weeds, one with three squares in it, one full. He took the full and left me the one with three. <laughs> so um, now I laugh hysterically about it. I mean, and, and I, um, it was funny because he had taken a loan out in my name, too, for oh LASIK. God. And uh, I always joke now. I wrote one of the best jokes off of it. This is where the best as they say comedy comes from pain he um he he took a loan out in my name for lasik eyes or lasik surgery yeah, obviously yeah. for the eyes so he could see better and um he was a porn addict so after i kind of snapped out of the pain i was like oh my god i just paid three thousand dollars so he can see other women's vaginas more clearly yep. <laughs> that's horrible that's great <laughs> again put that in the obituary jeanette took her own life after paying for the man who broke her heart to see other women's vaginas more clearly terrible don't take your life over something like that so um after that i got obviously therapy okay mm-hmm. and that's that was your first that that's when you started therapy or no, you were, were you in go, therapy as a I, teenager i went after katie died and the mm. first therapist i told you about the oh, right, second right, right. therapist my mom brought me to a couple months later i walked in and she laid on the floor and cried the whole time about how tragic the story was of these two teenagers taking their own life and i'm like they're Wait, the there therapist yeah, did? the therapist did so i comforted her and they came out and i'm like mom i don't think that was a good one um, and then uh, I came to L.A. and I had a therapist who was always late. 
when I was in the suicidal state, she was always late. She would talk to me about the boyfriend who ultimately ended up leaving and she would say, oh, you're better than that. And I was like, you know, my friends can tell me that for free. Right. What is it in me that is putting up with this? Because something is wrong. If I'm, you know, I'm smart. I have everything that I can do to get through life and I'm putting up with this bullshit from a man. Something in me is missing and I think it's because I don't love myself. How do I get there? So I parted ways with her and then I found my first therapist who taught me how to set boundaries which was, I think, what caused him to exit and take uh, my stuff. Because I was like, you can't uh, do this. You can't live in this house and not pay for anything. Right. And then, you know, take my car out for the night and not even be respectful enough to say where you are when it's three in the morning. You know, wow. so I learned how to set boundaries, went to another therapist. He did a really good job. And then I went to another therapist who really, I was never willing to take pills. Not that there's anything wrong with it, uh -huh. but I just didn't want to because I'm afraid I'll go numb and end up doing it so right. i um found another therapist who sort of silenced those suicidal thoughts just about talking in general and um you know with when i would talk about the men he'd be like he sounds like he's just a nincompoop <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like you're kind of right yeah. he's just stupid and then um we solved those problems and now i'm with a new therapist that's behavioral so i'll stop pulling on my hair and and the whole issue with the hair pulling is after Katie died, I was so afraid if I yelled at anybody that they would take their own lives. So I swallowed all of the pain that people were call causing on me and you have to release it somehow. Right. And so I released it through hair pulling. So her whole thing is just talk. See, that's, that's interesting about the hair pulling. I've never, I never heard of that. I mean, I've heard of people mm -hmm. doing that. I didn't know it, it had a name. Mm -hmm. What is the dip? Because I, since I was very young, I twirled my hair. Right. I have a really bad habit of twirling my hair. Okay, I, so. I, I do it now. And I mean, I do at some point it does come out right. and like I will take it out from the roots. Right. And I'll like show it to my wife because I think it's hilarious. Right. But I mean, wh where's <laughs> we're on the same page. Where's bonded that you know, <laughs> I can help you with this. Like there, there <laughs> is show you where you're headed. To, my to our listeners, there is a there is a point in which you can twirl your hair over the course of a few weeks or a few days that I guess you compromise the, the roots, the roots mm -hmm. so much that you could pull it out. It just slips right out. It slips right out of your scalp and it doesn't hurt. Mm -mm. So It doesn't and people don't understand that. Now here's the funny thing. I have like huge bald spots in the back of my head from this Do you? disorder, right? Your hair but looks then, lovely, by well, the way. Well, thank you, but in the front, <laughs> in, in my hotel room, I saw a gray hair in the front and I was like, oh, I gotta pull this out and I was like this is gonna hurt so bad and, and that hurt yeah sure because you know I used to do it you here. haven't been working on it right I used to do it here and my grandmother um, I would have these big knots and my grandmother was like if you gotta do it do it in the back of your head so she sort of trained me to do it in the back she'd always say you look like the Hasidics like that because I would have these huge knots <laughs> you look like a Hasidic if you gotta do it do it in the back of your head and so she trained me so I do it where it's hidden so nobody ever sees it I see mm -hmm. yeah but uh, yeah the, to the listeners you do note that if you twist your hair enough, yeah. it does come out of your head it, it, it really does and then there's other times where like I'll twirl it and then I'll get like a, a mini knot at the top uh -huh. and then you can take your thumbnail. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've ever done this. Not that we should be encouraging each other, <laughs> but you could take, you could take, like, you could take your thumbnail. This is not a good, this is a, 
uh, not a good example, but you could take your thumbnail and just like, right. And like pop it off. Right. Right. Yeah. No, you know, there's different levels of it too. Like there's just the twisting, there's the twist and the pull. And then some people actually eat it. That I haven't done. So, I have no yeah. desire to do that. No. And I read, and I read online about how each trigger occurs. And, um, one was that it says specifically People who were, when they were young, were taught to swallow their emotions tend to have this disorder, which my mother, the nun, would always say, oh, God doesn't like that. Don't say that. When I would be like, hey, you know, that guy's mean. No, God doesn't like that. Interesting. And so I think that's where it came from. So I'm in the middle. I don't have where you eat it, but people right. literally will pull their whole head out, hair of head head of hair out and eat and it eat it oh and i saw some pictures online which i don't recommend looking up because i was like wow that's crazy like huge clumps oh like the stomach was uh, this a big hairball that they had to do surgery on because the girl pulled all of her hair out and ate it oh my god so i don't have that version i just have the pull and drop version wow yeah there's, it's crazy. Is that something my therapist should be picking up on? Because I do it during therapy. Yeah, I'm surprised. That, should she is be it like female? I'm surprised. Yes. I'm surprised she hasn't picked up on it. But you know, I when I uh, called my therapist that I just transferred to, I told her like I'm not going to take medicine for this, but I have a disorder. I, I've learned that it's a disorder. I was training a client one day, and a guy that was in scrubs came up to me and he said, "Do you know you have a mental disorder?" And I was like, "Well, I was thinking what," but I was thinking because I was so depressed. And he's like, "No, your hair. What you're doing to your hair." He's like, "I've watched you for months," and he said, "You need to go tell somebody what you're doing." And I, I, I had no clue that it was a disorder. And I went and I um, looked it up and then I you know, called and I was like, you know, then the bald spots were kind of growing. So then I was like, yeah, um, I'm pulling my hair out and I don't want to take meds because usually they want to give you um, Zoloft for it. Which is what I'm on. And I was like, I'm too afraid. I'm afraid. I've read that a lot of people end up taking their own lives. And I was like, there has to be a way to teach people to, to not harm themselves, to love themselves enough that these things don't go on. And for her, she's just like, whenever someone hurts you, say it. Whenever someone offends you, say it. Don't swallow it. Just get it out. And so the more I'm doing that, the better I'm getting it, not touching my hair. Got it. So now you're seeing a, a behaviorist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what my wife is actually a behaviorist. She, is she? she does ABA with, okay. uh, with kids that have like autism and stuff. So what sort of behaviorist is this person's a therapist as well? Yeah, or? she's a therapist. And so she, she focuses a lot on, um, her, her specialty is actually eating disorders, oh, Okay, but she teaches just the way to change the behaviors. We actually laugh because, um, when I, I moved recently and my work was moving, it was, I was super stressed and I told her, I was like, listen, I went all out on my hair, but I just figured if it was kill myself or rip out my hair, I'm going to rip out my hair. And she right. said, yeah, she, she said, yeah, I tell people if it's kill yourself or eat the cookie, then eat the fucking cookie. Like right. just, just do what you need to do. But, uh, so she just teaches me how to figure out what's causing it and kind of attack it. But it, for me, it always comes down to just being afraid to confront someone who's hurting me. Cause I'm afraid that they'll then hurt themselves. That's, that's where everything with me comes from. Right. Mm -hmm. Gotcha.
And so by day you are a, you're a personal trainer. Yes. So I, uh, tell yes. me about that. What, I mean, how did you, how did you get into that? Well, I always liked moving around and running and, and inspiring people to be fit. So um, when I left law school, Bally's was ho- hiring in Hollywood and I started working there as a trainer. And um, then I really started to enjoy sales, which a lot of people don't get that personal trainers are responsible for a lot of sales. Yeah. So I moved up to run the department and I work for an all women's company and they actually promoted me now I'm in charge of all the personal training departments and just now my job is more training trainers how to train and how to do the business aspects <laughs> right, of it right. and uh, all of that which I know I, I prefer just being a trainer but my dreams are expensive and this was a higher paying job so I took it yeah you know you got to yeah. do what you got to do to pursue your dreams so yeah. it's a cool job though you know? yeah it sounds like I, I wish I was inspired to be in, in shape I used to be, I used to be in shape uh, I had a great experience with a personal trainer. He was, really? he was wonderful and he kicked my ass and I was in awesome shape. And you know, just after a while, just you fall off the wagon. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of my like just day to day, like getting super depressed about like the way I look and just, well, see, you got to exercise. I, I have started to go to Barry's boot camp, which they have them here right around here. Yeah. I was going to try to catch one before I left and, uh, Exercise helps you. It releases all those, you know, toxins that are in you. Yeah. Cheers you up. I highly recommend it. Got to do it, right? Anything. Yeah. Make you feel better about yourself. Because if you can conquer, they talk in berries, they talk a lot. Like, if you can, you know, run the sprint, you can do anything. And I really am like, oh, yeah, I could do this. Okay, I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of the instructors on my podcast. He's a great instructor. But he, not only is he great with instruction, but he gives these speeches that are super inspirational. And I was kind of dating a guy where I was like, maybe I should not do this anymore. I don't know. I need to have this conversation. And the more I'm running, I'm like actually putting my hands in my hair. And then he says, you know, if you can just make it through this last sprint, maybe some of you need to have a conversation you don't want to have. It's kind of like your stand-up experience. I'm like, that's right. I need to have this conversation that I don't need to have. And he's like, if you could just run this sprint at 10.0 for 30 seconds, you can have the conversation. And I'm sprinting. I can have the conversation. I can have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I made it through it. And then I was like super horny and I didn't feel like having the conversation. I felt like having sex instead. <laughs> All right. But eventually you had the conversation, I right? I did. I well, there did. You go. Yes. So you, there you go. So you put it off for your own gratification. Yeah. And good I mean, for you. It wasn't my, I told him I went, it was like I went from de- depressed to horny in a 30 second sprint. So yeah, it was good. <laughs> So I recommend exercise anyway. Yeah, I have to do it. I, I need like a, I need somebody to be like, go, dude, you can do it. Like I, as lame as it sounds, like the concept of a life coach 20 years ago sounded like completely absurd to me. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm not even sure what life coaches do, but uh-huh. I'm like, I, I, I'll take a life coach. That might be fun. There, what do life coaches do? Do you know? Well, I don't know. The life coaches <laughs> that I've met aren't actually someone whose life I aspire to have. But oh. <laughs> for 30 seconds or, you know, an hour, they give great speeches. Right. I mean, I think Les Brown, who if you... I listen to... Um, a lot of those inspirational videos on YouTube. Yeah. And Les Brown, Eric the Hip Hop Preacher, Eric Thomas, they 
I mean, they give their life coaches and their their speeches are super inspiring. Yeah, and I'm there. I think they were both very successful life coaches. But you can, I mean, just go on, you know, YouTube and and listen to their stuff. And right, it's right. Really inspirational. Les Brown says something that he says, uh, which I apply to when I you know fall flat on my back with my dreams of my show and my documentary and everything. Um, when life knocks you down, be sure to land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up. And I think that's such a great. Yeah saying nice so yeah i recommend them how did the robin williams suicide affect you you know that was so sad i actually was in boot camp and um i picked up my phone when i walked out and i had 200 messages on my phone i was like what in the world happened like, did my parents die something happened and it was just as i was walking out um i hadn't actually touched my phone and i i just saw the messages but i didn't look at what they were and i walked by the tv and saw robin williams on there and yeah. I was like he killed himself I was not shocked by it mm -hmm. because obviously someone who's in and out of rehab they're struggling with something and someone who's that funny there's pain that's yeah. you know pushing it um, so I wasn't shocked by it but it was very sad to me and I think the saddest thing about all of it was the way the people attacked the family yeah I mean, these people are people and they're grieving and they're in pain and they're in shock. And what right do you have to insult the family? And I get the freedom of speech for God's sakes. I'm a comedian. But when freedom of speech involves, you know, hurting other people, you know, I, I, I wish that that was not the case because I don't the poor daughter, yeah. the Twitter and everything. Yep. That was the saddest part of all of it to me. It's just what they're going through, knowing the pain they're in and that they can't grieve in peace. Yeah. Sad. People are just, you know, people are awful. They are. Yeah. But, you know, I was actually on a podcast right after that. And the woman was just, oh, people who kill themselves are stupid and they're selfish. And they're, and I, of course, wanted to come across the table and, you know, knock her out. But right. I couldn't do that. And it was actually my friend's mother who runs the, the podcast. So I wasn't going to do that to him. Meanwhile, he's looking at me like, I told you she was a bitch. And I was like, <laughs> I, this is why we're not getting married, my friend. <laughs> but um, deep down, I knew that it was coming from, she had struggled with it too. So I sort of swallowed it. But people who say that, you just have to think there's something in them that it's triggered that type of response. And probably it is that they had either lost someone to suicide that it really crushed them or you know, they, they are afraid they're going to take their own life, something. But, you know, it's sad at the end of the day. He was definitely talented. He brought so much laughter into the world. And, you know, he couldn't bring laughter into his own soul, which at the end of the day killed him. And that, yeah. that makes me sad. If you followed Robin Williams even casually, you knew that he, you know, he suffered from depression and he was, you know, he was in rehab mm -hmm. a few times. I was still shocked because you, 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 you would like to think that at that age, not that he was like super, super old and mm -hmm. he wasn't, you would think at that age you conquered it. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the, the more sad things uh, about that situation that right. he thought like mm. he made it through and now he still struggles, but he's going to come through. Okay. And but we'll I tried to rack my brain around, I was thinking, you know, about Robin Williams comedy and I, I, I can't remember any comedy that, he, and I'm sure he did it, but off my, at the top of my head, I don't remember any comedy he did that was about himself and his pain. Like Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, they all did stand up about how fucked up their lives were. But Robin Williams was about golf or about gymnastics and, yeah. you know, all these kinds of things. And I was trying to think do i ever remember him doing jokes about his own pain and 
I can't remember it, which I'm sure there is. And if I sat down and listened to things, I'm sure there's, you know, tons of it. I mean, I can't think of, I mean, he, he, you know, talked about doing drugs, but like not Mm -hmm. in a way that it was, it was almost like celebratory. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, I mean, it's such a loss. It's, it's so sad. And it, 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 I am afraid too, when people see someone like Robin Williams taking their own lives that they think, well, it's almost like comics, right? How many of us would kill to have his career? Right. And we think, oh, well, if we get there, life's going to be grand. I don't have to worry about where my rent's coming from. I don't have to worry about where I'm going to get my next job from. Life is going to be so perfect if I got to Robin Williams status. And then when Robin Williams takes his own life, you think, well, shit, you know, what am I going to do now if I got to be that far along? So, you know, it's sad. Yeah, it's a good lesson that you you have to be okay with yourself. You have to, you know, your mind is is that's what's gonna you know, no matter what's going on around you, you need to your you need to be okay mm-hmm. with your in your head. Well, because a lot of people think, oh, if I became like the Kardashians and I had all this money, money doesn't do anything. You know, if you can't, whatever the hole is in your soul that causes the pain, money isn't going to fill it. A marriage isn't going to fill it. Children aren't going to fill it. You have to find a way to take care of it yourself. And and I've really, you know, people mess with me about why are you still single and 35? And I'm like, well, I had a lot of problems going on and I right. didn't know how to love myself. And if I wasn't prepared to love myself, I definitely wasn't prepared to give it out to anybody else. It's an important thing. If you're struggling with depression, don't think money's going to solve it because it's not. Yeah. The documentary that you're raising money for, you're let's let's plug that a little bit. Okay. So it's on Indie Indiegogo, right? Indiegogo, uh-huh. Blind. It's called Blindsided, a documentary because there's two or three Blindsideds on there, but Blindsided, a documentary. Mm-hmm. That's our page. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're raising you're raising a lot of money. Trying to raise a lot of money. Yes. Hundred hundred grand. Hundred thousand. Yep. We're going after to finish the documentary, be able to fly to interview all of these um, stories that we're hearing about. Um, also submit to as many film festivals as possible. Um, a dream of mine is for it to be on HBO's because um, they do the Human Interest series. So yeah. that would be great. Um, and then also the show, I'd like to tour it as much as possible. So some of the funds will go to that. And as we were discussing, I'm out of funds for my podcast. Right. <laughs> so I haven't done it in about six weeks and I was just getting good <laughs> at it. And so it's going all towards the brand, finishing the documentary, getting the word out there, trying to inspire as many people as we can and, um, you know, bring it together with the, the one woman show and, be able to stand on a stage and say this is what I struggled with and stay afterwards and say let's do a podcast tell me what you struggle with and let's help you let's help you find the whole thing of the podcast is finding the funny and the dark side of life because if you can do that you can survive anything yeah well thank you I really I really appreciate you coming uh, to New York and uh, talking with me I was very excited to be here <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Jeanette no problem and there you have it guys thank you so much for tuning into the 100th episode of the Laugh Spin podcast Jeanette Rizzi look her up Jeanette is J-E-A-N-N-E-T-T-E Rizzi R-I-Z-Z-I so look her up online go to her Indiegogo campaign for Blindsided and give a few bucks if you can. I really do appreciate you guys tuning in. It means a lot. Please go to iTunes and and subscribe if you haven't already. 
go to laughspin.com. Obviously, that is the website that this podcast was born out of. Support that. We'll see you very soon, guys. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.